Good morning, good morning, transit family. Feel free to grab a seat, grab a seat. Grab a seat, grab a seat. How's everyone doing today? We good? How about that worship? Can we thank, can we hear for the band? Leading us to exaltation of Jesus. Thank you guys. Kayla's back from four-week uh, world travels to London and Spain and all these cool places. So glad to have you back, Caleb. Uh, today we have a special treat. I will be preaching uh, a sermon, but it'll be a smaller sermon. And we wanted to create space uh, to testify to what God is doing in our midst. And so uh, Ian Hannah is going to come and share recently uh, what the Lord has done uh, in his life in this past season. And uh, we wanna, we wanna, uh, we're here uh, to honor God. We're here to glorify God. This is a worship gathering. If we were to ask, hey, why are we here? Is it to uh, attend a, a sporting event, to see people perform on stage and take notes and just, and just receive? Or are we here to worship King Jesus as the name above all names? And it's the, it's the latter, right? We're here to bring exaltation to Jesus. And one of the ways that Christ is glorified and honored is when his people testify uh, about his goodness and his grace in their life and his power by the Holy Spirit to transform them. And so we wanted to do that today. We wanted to honor God and glorify him uh, by not hiding something that he's done in our congregation under a bushel, but by creating space during our service to uh, testify of his power. He's still heal, save, and deliver. So before I say too much, I'm going to say a little bit after Ian shares, but let's put our hands together. Let's welcome our very own Ian Hanna on the stage to share with us this morning. Uh, so uh, maybe if I could just start with a quick prayer, because uh, I am a little scatterbrained. So Lord, just pray that uh, you would get me out of the way, that uh, you, the power of your spirit could be shown and uh, keep the line of reasoning and the story that you want and not, not what I want. Thank you for your grace and your love. So it really is, uh, you've yeah, been familiar with the last 10 years of my life. It's, it's a miracle that I'm even standing here because less, less than a year ago, I was convinced that I was a vessel of wrath that was prepared for destruction. And uh, it was year seven of a just a deep, dark uh, depression that uh, I just could not get out of. Uh, and, and what's hard to explain, so I, instead of trying to give you the extended version, I'm just I'm going to read a part of uh, my journal. I, I did journal intermittently uh, about my feelings during depression through it. Um, and this is just a, you know, a representative sample of the way that I felt. So every thought I have is horrid and cruel. Just need peace and quiet. Silence this voice in my head. Make it nicer. I'm scared that I can't change, that I've told myself that I'm stupid and worthless for so long that now I can't believe anything else. I'm wrecked with guilt and fear, captive in my own mind, forgotten that I was set free. Freedom and joy are just a distant glimmer on the horizon. Lies, lies, lies. Why can I not stop believing them? Why am I choosing death? I feel incapable of choosing anything else. Am I like Esau, who sought redemption through tears, but could not find God because of his need to gratify the flesh? Like Esau, who God hated? Does the promise of entering his rest still stand for me? On a path of self-destruction, you won't even have the motivation to get off. Hopeless. That was where I was at for 
lot of years. I was convinced that I'd been abandoned by God. Um, and I, I was in therapy, a lot of therapy for six, seven years. And in 2021, just, you know, last year, I had, uh, I had some breakthroughs. and I was doing better, and I thought, oh, this is it. I'm going to be healed, finally on track. But reconnecting with my faith uh, was still just out of, out of grasp for me. And just like it had been for the years prior, praying felt like screaming into an empty void. And like when I'd read the word, the only thing where I could read myself into God's story was that I was... I was his, his enemy. And yeah, that was my life until January 28th of this year when he came for me. And I was actually lecturing my son for ignoring Francesca and I when we were, we were actually trying to help him. And parents, do you ever like lose yourself in a train of thought when you're talking to your kids? You know, like I, I knew I was going, I know I'm going somewhere with this thing, but I I don't remember. So it was at that point where I was lost in my own thoughts that I just found myself saying, if you ignore us, then you break the relationship and we can't do anything without a relationship. And it was like at that moment, like the Holy Spirit just showed up, right? And I was convinced more than of this, more than anything else in my entire life, that those words were from God for me. Right? He actually did want me. This thing, like I had been struggling to, to believe that, uh, that I wasn't abandoned. And I tried so hard in so many different ways. And this thing that I had tried so hard just gave me in a moment when I didn't expect it. And hope returned. And it had been so long. Poor kid. I started crying. Yeah. I, I, uh, I had to let, I let him off the hook. So... <laughs> But I could finally read and uh, read the word and pray again. And I, during those times, I could know the truth. Uh, but I was still stuck in anxiety and fear. Anytime I would do anything else, I would just quickly get sucked back into this anxious fear that seemed to just pervade my life. So the Holy Spirit at the time uh, just inspired me to start memorizing as much scripture as I could fit into my feeble little brain. It really was a survival tactic, right? There was just bad things in my head that I didn't want there, and I needed to replace them with something, and, and I wanted to replace them with the word. And this is something I'd tried to do before and was like, seemed unable to do. I, I've always wanted to memorize like large sections of scripture, but the Holy Spirit just gave me the, the strength, the power to do it finally, and just started memorizing yeah, chapters, books. <laughs> much as I could get in there. And <clears throat> it's hard to explain. I, I still don't even know. There's something supernatural happening during, during those times where I would you know, be memorizing and reciting. Like I would read, for instance, grace. I could recognize in myself that I didn't understand grace. I just had this compulsion, this need to fix myself up before I would go to God. And I, I knew the truth and... I, I wanted to believe the truth, and all I could do was just cry out, help me in my unbelief. And when I, uh, it, it, it just, yeah, it was a lot of crying out, and 
Nothing seemed to change until I just heard myself saying over and over and over again, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us and all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Just those large chunks of scripture finally just there's in, in the back of my head, doing something supernatural. Um, and, and amen for the word, yes? <clears throat> and so at, this was, you know, the last four, well, June, May through August, right, uh, of this year. And I kind of, at the time, kind of felt like things were getting worse for me personally. I was still, you know, stuck in anxiety and fear, and Psalms 38 became my, my constant prayer. You know, um, puke me not, in your, Lord, in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, for your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. Um, there is no soundness in my flesh because of uh, your iniquity. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. Like, that, that was my constant prayer. Um, and at, at the time, I knew that there was an unseen spiritual war happening, but I was unwilling to engage directly with it. Like if someone would try to talk to me about, um, you know, how demonic forces could have uh, an effect on my life, I just didn't, I didn't want to touch it. It was uncomfortable. I didn't like it. I couldn't talk about it, uh, which probably should have been a sign. Um, but finally, because of that kind of unease with it, in, in August, I was uh, motivated to, to, to prove Nick wrong about something. And, uh, <laughs> right? and through, that, through the process of you know, reading up to prove him wrong, uh, it became obvious that what I believed made absolutely no sense whatsoever. Um, I could... And I had, to, I had to recognize, right? And actually, one of the things that I wrote in my, my final last-ditch effort was, if I believe, if I, if I believe, I'm sorry, I believe that if I'm a good enough son, and that's all I needed, right? It's like, that, that is a lie, right? It flies right in the face of, uh, of uh, Ephesians. And I had to finally admit that um, you know, there was something wrong in my life that I wasn't willing to touch. And I started praying for the Lord to show me what strongholds or uh, footholds the enemy could have in my life. Um, and just for two days, I feel like just the Holy Spirit just gave me a download of all of the, the, the lies through depression and through um, trauma and wounds that I, I had suppressed. I remembered things that I you know, had uh, not thought about or intentionally, you know, for years, um, and yeah, that was on a Thursday and Friday, and it was, it was the weekend of the ending of our, uh, our corporate fast. Um, that Saturday, 
it felt like, you know, the Holy Spirit had just shown me so much, and I was trying to repent as much as I could, and the, the gig was up, though, at that point. Um, there's this, there was, there had been this voice in my head that years ago I thought was my own voice that through the depression had become just nasty and just constant accusing all day long. Um, and it, it quieted down a little bit, like after January, but it came back with a vengeance that Saturday and Sunday. And um, yeah, I, I, I remember sitting here during, um, during service, just having this intense feeling of oppression, like I didn't belong here and that I needed to like run out of the room. Um, I had kept thinking about a, a, an experience and a dream that I had in, like five, seven years ago, where I talked to a demon. I thought it was a dream. I don't think it's a dream anymore. Um, and I just kept seeing that picture and, uh, and could hear this thing laughing in, in my head at me. Uh, it was very, very scary. And so because it was the weekend of the end of the corporate fast, it was also the only Sunday night service that we've, I think, that the Transit Church has ever had, at least since the five years I've been here. Uh, and it was the day, the one day that I needed it the most. And Francesca had reminded me, or I, I probably ignored the fact that it was happening. When she came I was, and told me about it, I was originally scared. I didn't want to go. Um, and just the Holy Spirit gave me courage and showed me that it wasn't me that was scared. Um, and I came to the, that evening, and I, I tried to tell the story that night. Um, but I didn't do a very good job, so I apologize. But it was during, during the third song, when we were during our praise and worship service, and I was still under attack, not able to ignore or get out from under this, uh, this oppression in my head, and the Holy Spirit um, brought to mind Daniel 3. This is the story of a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and I just pulled it out right there as we were singing, and I read, uh, O king, you ha we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you had set up. And it was this, this idea of just absolute, complete submission. And I realized that that I was not yet trusting God with the whole thing. I still wanted, I still needed to do something, right, to make this bad thing in me go away. And I just, my, at, that, at that moment, like my soul cried out and agreed with the sentiment that, you know, I, I know that God can uh, deliver me from this, and, but if not, I will still praise him. And uh, at, at that moment, it just, just, Felt peace wash over me. Um, yeah, I, everything, all of the torment in, in me in, in a moment was just replaced uh, by peace. Like all the, the longings that uh, I had been trying to suppress because they were bad and pointed in the wrong direction was uh, where they were just, they were met. It was something I had not felt in yeah, over a decade. You know, like desire awakened, finally pointed in the right direction uh, towards the infinitely beautiful Savior that 
knew no sin, but became sin, so that I might be the righteousness of God and the Father who's at, at whose right hand are pleasures forevermore. And yeah, that, that was, everything changed in that moment. Um, it's not like everything in my life suddenly got easier. Um, I, certainly, there has been uh, moments of fear and anxiety since, but it's, it's not even remotely the same. It's uh, prayer and reaching out to the Spirit actually um, makes a difference now, right? Where I felt, where I felt stuck, I was finally free again. Um, so, yeah, so that, that moment, I'm not quite sure all of the details on what happened, right? But, but so much changed, uh, and I was like, for days, weeks afterwards, I was just kind of waiting for the other, like, fear, anxiety foot to drop, like everything to go back to the way it was before. Um, but it, you know, it, it still has not, um, like, I hadn't, I'd been struggling with insomnia, insomnia went away, um, I wanted to be with other people again, which is, uh, was a miracle in itself. Um, I know, I no longer felt compelled to do things that, like, punished myself, the, the idea that I can, I can forgive myself, um, was, was available to me again. I was struggling with not being able to forgive my own, my own self, so... And, and yeah, and through just further prayer, realizing all of the, I think, realized some of the pieces that were involved with that, and the uh, not recognizing, not being willing to touch um, the reality of what, going, what was going on around me was a, a huge part of what, what changed. And, uh, and the rest of it was the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit and his power. He can do anything at any time uh, with anyone, right? And uh, and that's yeah, that's what he showed me. Um, let's go to the Lord in Thanksgiving, Amen. God, you are so good. Lord, if you would have told me this man five years ago would be standing on this stage testifying of the work you've done in his life by your spirit, by your word, your truth, God, your power, I would have said that would, have, that would be a miracle. Knowing how deep the depression went and how bad it was, God. And Lord, I thank you for the honor and the privilege it is to see a man change before my very eyes. Because that's what you do, Jesus. You're still doing it. You did it in the book. You did it in the first century, Jesus, and you're still doing it today. So we bring all honor and praise and glory to you uh, for what you've done in Ian's life, God, his testimony. And I pray, Lord Jesus, you wouldn't stay your hand. And we rest in your promise that he who began a good work in you will bring it through to completion, God. So thank you for Ian, his willingness to share. And Lord Jesus, we're just blown away uh, in awestruck wonder of who you are and what you can do with with any story, no matter how bad it is, the Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's thank Ian, guys, for coming up here. Everyone wants to share. Thank you, Ian. Felt led to read Luke 4 um, after Ian was, was sharing that. In Luke 4, Jesus is quoting the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 61, and, and, and Jesus says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, 
because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor and set me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's the work of Jesus. It's what he came to do. It's what he's still doing by his spirit. It's amazing, truly amazing. I, uh, sorry, I'm a mess. I just, I'm, I think being the only one in this room outside Ian's family who knows how much of a miracle it is to what he testified. And it was all the work of God. And it is truly amazing. So one of the reasons we want to share testimonies is to say that our God is real and he's really among us and he's still transforming lives by his word, by his truth, by his power, by his spirit. And that should instill three things in us, should still instill in us a lot of things. But one, it should instill fresh faith in our hearts. That our God is real. Jesus is alive. He's not, he hasn't tied his hands. He hasn't shut his mouth to no longer do what he used to do. No, he's still, the line of Judah is still on the prowl. And the second thing I hope that that testimony instills is, is fresh awe and wonder of God's goodness and his power and his grace that the refrain, God is really among us. And the third thing we hope that it instills is fresh hunger in our hearts where our hearts have grown cold and apathetic and we feel like God is distant and we just come here and we sing some songs, hear a sermon, go home and nothing really changes, that it should instill a fresh hunger in our hearts to seek after the real God, the living God. 1 Corinthians 14.1 says, Pursue love, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you prophesy. And when we see the, uh, the dynamite power that the Holy Spirit has to change people's lives through the manifestation of his gifts being operative in the body of Christ, we should hunger for that. Amen? Amen. All right, so uh, let's keep the good times going. I'll stop crying up here. Uh, and uh, Nehemiah 8 is where we're at today in our text from the pulpit. We go through books of the Bible here at the transit. And Nehemiah 8, 1 through 8 is where we're at. So turn there. As you're turning there, a quick recap of where we are at in the story of Nehemiah is the walls surrounding the city that were once torn down have been rebuilt in miraculously in 52 days. And uh, what we looked at last week is now the Lord put on Nehemiah's heart to repopulate the city. And the whole theme of Nehemiah is not just the, rest of the physical restoration of the brokenness of Jerusalem, but the spiritual restoration of God's, broken of God's people's broken relationship with God. And so it begs the question, now that the city has been rebuilt and repopulated, what should we do? And what we're going to see is that, is that they, they held a, a rockin' like tent revival meeting. That's what they did. And so this is a huge, our text today, Nehemiah 8, 1 through 8, at first glance, it kind of comes across as just like a, a church service. This platform's built. Ezra, the priest and scribe, stands for seven hours reading from scrolls of the Torah to people. And that's pretty much all of our text. That's what it says. Ezra stood, he read the scriptures, okay? And at first glance, we're like, oh, that's just a, uh, a church service there. Lots of people gathered, so on and so forth. But instead, it's so much more than that. This is a covenant renewal. This is God speaking first to his people to call them back home, which is the title of my message. Is, is today God is telling the returned exiles, hey, even though the city of God's been restored, the temple's been restored, and you're living and dwelling in the midst of the city, your hearts still need to return home to me. And our God is a God who initiates first. In any relationship where there's division and hostility, uh, between two parties, it takes one party to take the first step towards reconciliation, to speak and move, to bring about reconciliation, that, re uh, that relationship. So uh, who, here, who here has a dog? Anyone here has a dog at home? Dog people? Yeah, yeah. Anyone who here has cats at home? 
Okay, more, more dog people at the transit for the glory of God. Amen. All right. So growing up, not growing up, in college, I had a roommate. His name was Toby. I lived with Toby and about eight other dudes in a house in college. And he I got a puppy my junior year of college. And it was a little miniature schnauzer that he named Chewy after Chewy Chewbacca from Star Wars. Okay, And this dog, I, this dog and I had a love-hate relationship. He uh, was raised by not the best parents. He was raised by eight college dudes, so more power to him. Anyways, but he was that dog that you would just be sitting in your living room, and then all of a sudden, he'd just, like, start growling at you, you know? Like, dude, I know you. What are you growling at me for? Like, he's got, he just had beef with me, and then uh, Toby would be gone for, like, a week or two, and then, you know, we'd have to watch Chewy, but he would get into the trash. There'd be trash all over the kitchen. He would feel free to just, you know, go to the bathroom wherever he wanted in the house. We'd have to clean it up. So long story short, there was a winter, I think it was the winter of my senior year, college winter break, where Toby was back in Vermont, and I was left watching Chewy for a week. So I was like, okay, I'm going to restore this relationship. I'm going to pursue Chewy's heart. And we're going we're gonna to go to my parents' cabins in the woods, uh, two hours west of here, and we're just going to have some time together. And it was awesome. The first day was awesome. We were hiking in the woods. He would go run, and I'd call him back, and he'd always come back to me. And then that night, made a warm fire. I'm sitting there reading on the couch, and he comes and did what he's never done before. And he called and climbed up on my, my chest and curled up in a ball and fell asleep. On my, and I was like, this is amazing. We are restored to fellowship. This is awesome. So the next morning, I wake up, and uh, he has to use the bathroom. So I do what I, I normally would do is I open the door, and I let him out, and I close the door, expecting that once he's done, he'll be at the door, like most dogs do, and come back and let me know that he's done. And it was freezing outside. It was like, had to be below, it felt like it was below 30. When I opened the doors, like wind and snow came in the house, and I was like, okay, uh, let's shut this door, and I'll come back. And so like a minute later, I come back, and I'm like, chewy, chewy, he's not coming back. I'm like, okay, I'm going to give him his space. And then I go back the second time, and I'm yelling for him. And now enough time has passed that he should come back, and he's gone. He ghosted. I think the second I opened the door, he was like, boom, I'm out of here. He ran away from me, and I freaked out. Uh, because I was uh, his legal guardian for that week. And I didn't want to have to tell my, my college roommate, one of my best friends, that, hey, I lost your best friend in the woods in the middle of, middle of winter. So anyway, so I run around the cabin like a madman, going like north, south, east, west, trying to figure out, trying to look for paw prints in the snow. I have no idea where he went. I can't find him. And all of a sudden, I'm like, after like 20 minutes of running around trying to find him, I'm like, holy smokes, he's like lost, lost. Like our cabin is surrounded by woods, and there's just like two dirt roads that I can go on. So I get in my car, get in the dirt road, and it's like a mile loop that, that will go on, on the back side of my cabin and all the way back to the front. And I'm on the way back now, and the windows are down. I'm yelling for, for Chewy, and I don't see him anywhere. I'm on the way back, and I'm like, if I don't see him on the way back, he's gone. He's gone. And right before the final hill to get back to my parents' cabins, I see to my right, I see this little miniature schnauzer with his nose in the ground following some deer scent trail in the woods. And so I stop the car, I get out, and I yell at him, but like not like a harsh yell because I don't want to send him away, but like a, Chewy, like, I'm here, you know, like, what are you going to do about this? And all of a sudden he looks, and we have this kind of like standoff. Like, I came, I sought him out. My back never turned on Chewy. His back turned on me. He's like, I don't, I, don't, I don't want to be around this guy. I want to leave. I want to go into the wilderness. This is where true life and joy, you see where I'm going with this, right? And so, so I yell for Chewy. I initiate first to bring about reconciliation. And how I initiate is something comes out of my mouth. I speak. I speak out life. I speak out words of invitation to come home, invitation to repentance. And by God's grace, Chewy was too far away. I, couldn't, I wasn't fast enough. If he wanted to run, I couldn't catch him. But he came back, hopped up in the car, and we went back to the cabin 
and, uh, and um, I brought him home to his friend, okay? So uh, it was amazing. I didn't lose him. But the reason I shared that today is when Ezra, the priest and scribe, is reading for seven hours from the Torah, what that is, is the, the, the scriptures or God's revelation of who he is and all the heights and lengths and depths he's gone to redeem a people to himself. And when he redeems those people to himself, then he says, this, these are the terms of our relationship. This is what it looks like to be solely committed to me in a covenant of love and of fellowship together. And so today is not what we're looking at in Nehemiah 8. It's not just some boring church service. No, this is God speaking first to his people who are exiled, his people who are wandering from him. It's him opening up the door and yelling, come back home, return home. And there's a pivotal moment for God's people because when God speaks and calls, they still have a choice today in our text. Will they turn? Will they continue to harden their hearts and continue to run away from God? Or will God's word soften their hearts? And will they repent and return home? So let's read this text and pray, and we'll dive on in. Ro uh, not Romans 8, uh, Nehemiah 8, 1 through 8. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded in Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the, the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood, I think, six guys on his right hand and seven on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in his sight of all the people. For he was above all the people. As he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord and, and the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And also Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Jazabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we come before you grateful for your word. We're, we come before you grateful that we worship and serve a God who speaks first, who moves first, who initiates first, and we just get to respond to your love, to your grace, to your pursuit. So when we respond today, when we posture our hearts, God, uh, to, 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 to have your scriptures search our hearts, and I pray, Lord, that um, a pleasing aroma of repentance and return to your heart would happen, that we would leave the idols that that have, that have uh, uh, dulled our affections for you and we come running full sprint back to a, a God who's full of grace and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So have your way with your word and your people. We pray, Jesus, you would be magnified today. And all God's people said, amen. All right, let me paint the picture to where we're at. It's 445 B.C., just a few days prior, the wall was complete and the people of God gathered to celebrate the Feast of Trumpets which is the beginning of the Feast of Tabernacles, which we're going to talk more about in a few weeks. And the key refrain, starting in verse 1 of our text, is all the people gathered as one man. When it says all the people gathered, they're talking about thirty to 50,000 men, women, and children gathered outside the water gate. It wasn't, there wasn't enough room in the temple 
to house that many people. So they, they built themselves a stage, a platform outside the water gate for Ezra, the priest and the scribe, who's been laboring in Jerusalem for 13 years prior to this moment to rebuild the temple and to restore true and proper worship to the temple. So, so Ezra is there, and they built this platform for him to read from the scrolls, kind of maybe the, the highlight reel of, of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, so on and so forth. And they built this platform, and we see that there's an entourage, I think six on his right, seven on his left. And meanwhile, what I do want to say is this, is nothing like this happened in Israel for 200 years. The last time we see this kind of gathering, this kind of corporate assembly of people hearing God's word and repenting and crying out in confession and repentance was the reign of Josiah in the late 7th century. So they gather from early morning to midday to hear the word of God spoken to them. That's like, for a modern-day illustration, would be from 9.30 a.m. this morning and me preaching until 4.30 p.m. Yeah, some of you are like, okay, let's not, let's not do that. Um, if we go a little late, you all can handle it based on the, our text. All right, I'll just say that. All right. And so what we see is Ezra reads the law, but then also he commissions uh, groups of Levites into the crowd to explain the scriptures. It's kind of like me up here, if I were to read the word, and then I would commission all the community group leaders to, to help you guys understand it. You're like, what's the need for that? Why do we need that? Well, back then, 3% of the population was literate could actually read. Secondly, the scriptures being read were spoken in Hebrew. The people adopted the language of the conquering empire, the Babylonians and Persians, which was Aramaic. So they all spoke Aramaic, not Hebrew. And then thirdly, um, your, your access and my access to the scriptures is, is, is something unprecedented. We can have every version at our fingertips on our phone and in our homes whenever we want it. Good versions and really bad versions of scripture, okay? But we have access. The people didn't have access like we have access today. And so for, in order for them to get access, they would have to go to the priests to read the law. And then it was all in Hebrew. So then they need someone to interpret the law. So we see just this full court press of the Levites and the priests and the scribes helping the people to understand God's law. And so all that to say is, the, is this. Against all odds, against all odds, the, the length of time, six to seven hours, and, and the language barrier, the people were dialed in. In verse 3 of our text, it says, all the people were attentive to the word of the law. And more than that, they get a little Pentecostal on Ezra. We see that they're not doing the mannequin challenge for six to seven hours, just being still. And Anyone know what the mannequin challenge is? Right? Okay. Let's not repeat that. I hope that's not trending on social media again. But basically, it was like everyone sits still in a room, and then you just record it. And somehow that was entertaining. I don't know how that was entertaining. Anyways. So in worship, we hear that these people shout out in verse 6 some amen, amens to Ezra blessing the Lord. They, they, uh, they, they bow their heads in reverence to God. They raise their hands. Their faces are on the ground in worship of God. When Ezra opened the scroll, which they understood as the very word of God to his people, they all stood on their feet to honor God's word. And the clear impression of the text is this. They didn't have to be there. They wanted to be there. They didn't have to lean in. They wanted to lean in. And they weren't there just to listen to the Torah. They were there to get right before the Lord. They were there to connect with God. This was a covenant renewal. This was them renewing the covenant, almost renewing the vows of the covenant that they have violated 
with their Lord. And the truth of the matter, I talked about this in the beginning, but it bears repeating, is reconciliation between two parties that are hostile to one another is only possible when both parties want that restoration, want that restoration. So I could have yelled, going back to the story in the beginning, I could have yelled out to Chewy all I want to return, but simply put, if he didn't want to come home, he wouldn't have turned around. And I, I, he, he had a free will. God's given us that gift of will, of us wanting what God wants, which is right relationship with him. And so what I'm getting at is that the hinge, that kind of the door of reconciliation hinges on and, so, and hangs on, is the willingness of both parties to be restored to fellowship. And we see that, the psalmist David, you know, David crying out, create in me a clean heart, O God, restore a right spirit within me. Although I have sinned, although I transgress, I still want to be restored to right relationship with you, O God. And the story of God is that he is covenantly faithful, he's steadfast in his love, meaning that he's never once turned his back on his people. It's his people who have continually turned their back on God. And yet the continual refrain of the scriptures is God sends the prophet, God sends his word, God speaks and moves and chases them down and eventually gives his very son to redeem people while they were still in their sins. And so then the question that remains, and I'm going to slowly wrap up my talk here with these last two points, um, is this, is well, how do we this morning, how do we shift from knowing that, okay, I know in Christ Jesus my eternal union with him can never be broken. But just like any covenantal relationship, my, my experience of that relationship can ebb and flow. My communion, my fellowship, my relationship with him can ebb and flow in, in degrees of intimacy and so on and so forth. We understand that. If you've been married uh, till death do us part, and yet there are certain seasons in our life where it's vibrant, it's life-giving, it's joyful, but then there's these foxes that can get in the vineyard and ruin that delight. And so the question is, how do we shift from having to to want to be restored to right fellowship with God? If God desires unbroken and unhindered fellowship with us, how do we respond likewise? And I think we see two things in our text. And the first thing is this. We see God's people, they absolutely loathe their sin. They grieve their sin and the separation, the exile it brought them. And the second thing we see is that they believe that God was better, that returning to God was better than staying in the exile of their sin. So the first thing is this. We have to let the scripture search our hearts so that we grieve our sin and the separation it brings between us in God. What we see in Nehemiah 8 is that upon hearing God's word proclaimed through the Torah, they begin to mourn and weep. Nehemiah 8, 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn and weep. Why are they saying that? For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Why did they weep? Why were they weeping? Why were they on their face crying out and mourning? Because God's law was showing them how far they had drifted from his heart and from following in his footsteps. The common refrain throughout uh, the Old Testament scriptures is God calling out to his redeemed people saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. And then there's a response God calls upon his people and his people respond back and they renew the covenant. They affirm the covenant and they say, yes, you, Yahweh, will be our God, our only God, and we will be your people. 
meaning that what you've laid out for us in the Torah of what it means to actually walk in obedience to your law, to be your people, we will do. And instead, that refrain was, we won't be your people, and we will have other gods. You will not be our gods, and we'll be the people of other gods. And one of the primary functions we see of, of God's law, God's word, is this revelation, this revelation of truth. God's law reveals God's perfect righteousness as well as our own sinfulness and shortcomings. James talks about God's law being a mirror, uh, a mirror. And uh, I don't know about you, but I'm a huge fan of mirrors, aren't you? I'm pretty sure all of you, right, like love mirrors, okay? Because here's the deal. I'll be hanging out with some friends, and not anyone in this room, but maybe friends outside the church community. None of you would be guilty of this. And you guys have probably can share this sentiment with me. You'll be hanging out with people for a long time, and then uh, after hanging out with them, you'll like go to the bathroom, you look in the mirror, and you'll see like spinach all up in your teeth. And you're like, where are my friends at? They clearly saw the spinach in my teeth, and they didn't say anything. But this mirror is like the brutally honest friend who's finally telling me, revealing what's true. That's all a mirror does, is it shows you how you really look. It shows you, who you like, how you really are, right? It speaks the unfiltered truth to us. And this is what Hebrews 4 12 through 13 talks about in regards to God's word. God's word is like an MRI, a spiritual MRI, where it shows us internally what is going on, things that we can't see until we look into the word of God. For the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom he must give an account. God's word searches us. We don't search God's word. God's word penetrates our hearts. When we get into God's word, we see, wow, I, am, I fall woefully short of the glory of God. I need a savior. I need forgiveness. I need help. And so for seven hours, Ezra holds up the mirror, the massive mirror of God's word to the people. And for the first time in a really, really long time, these, these returned exiles finally saw the truth of how Far their hearts had drifted from the Lord, and it absolutely wrecked them. They grieved their sin. They say, we have transgressed. It wasn't God who turned his back on. We turned our backs on God, and we don't want to return to exile. That was awful. That was not home for us. We want to stay here. We want to return home. And so the thing about a mirror is that it only reveals the problem. It doesn't heal the problem. Right, like if I notice spinach in my teeth, I'm not going to take the mirror off the wall and try to floss my teeth with the mirror. Right, I, the, the mirror only reveals what's wrong. It can't actually heal the problem. And in God's word, please listen to this, God has no interest in just holding a mirror to us and having us live in guilt and shame and condemnation. That's not his heart. God wants to show us what is true so that he can truly transform us by his grace. Jesus puts it this way. John 5, 39 through 40, you search, he's talking to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And yet it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So what Jesus is saying is about the scriptures is you need to read the scriptures and the scriptures need to search your heart. But instead of going to the scriptures to solve the problem, you need to throw yourself on your face before the Lord and say, help me, Jesus, I need forgiveness. 
I need your Holy Spirit. I need your grace. I need your love. I need your presence in my life to transform me. I can't do this on my own. And tragically, we often live like deists where we just say, I don't need God. He's given me his scriptures. And I can obey it apart from his grace. I can obey it apart from the empowerment of his spirit. But what Jesus says is the scriptures are continually crying out to us, be reconciled to God. He's made a way where there was no way for sinners to be restored to fellowship with him. And it's in his son, Christ Jesus. Go to him, cry out to him. That's how we get home to God's heart and get cleaned up. And the second thing, and I'll wrap up with this, is one, we need to grieve our sin and the exile it brings, and we see the people weeping. But this, Nehemiah 8 doesn't stop there with their weeping. We have to believe that God is better and that returning to God in repentance is better than, than what we're living for. And that's the lie of the enemy, that's the lie of false gods that rob our affection and our attention from God, is that YouTube is better than Jesus. Or Amazon, another pair of shoes is better than Jesus. Or whatever, fill in the blank, this is better. And the call is, exile is awful, and God is better. I'm going home, right? I'm going home. And I think one of the primary reasons we don't immediately return to God after wandering, right? All of Christian life is repentance, None of us are walking in sinless perfection. That day's coming, but we're not, we ain't home yet. Can I get an amen to that? Right? And so our hearts are prone to wander. And what keeps us from immediate repentance, which is turning from sin and turning to the God of all grace for fresh forgiveness and reassurance of pardon, I often believe it's shame and fear. It's shame for what we've done that keeps us from returning. Of, man, I did it again. Really? I lost my temper again? Oh, really? I, I wasted time here again. I, so shame keeps us, but then also fear of how God is going to respond if we return to him. Fear of how God's going to respond if we return to him. That actually our view of God is that he's not full of grace and truth. He's full of wrath and, 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 and discouragement and disgust with us. And so if we were to return to God, he would, he, would, uh, he would knock us around a little bit. He'd have a few words. So it's easier for us to live in shame and keep our distance from God because we're too afraid of rejection that's going to come going to him with fresh forgiveness. And so I'm a parent, if you don't know me, of, of three kids, and uh, I've been praying about the Lord giving me uh, other illustrations during my sermons besides my kids. Um, but here it is. I got another one for, for you this, these past couple of weeks. I had a, a conflict with one of my kids, and there's an amazing moment that happens when you have kids who are under six years of age when something happens and you're like, oh my gosh, I thought that would have happened when they hit their teenage years, but now my four-year-old's doing this. Like, this is crazy. And I... There was a disobedience, and, and so we were having kind of a, a talk about that, and this person ran away from my presence, and they shut the door to my room. They went into my room, and I hear a, a click, and they locked me out of my room. Like, hey, pops, conversation's over. I'm going to go be mad at you and, like, you know, not talk to you. And I was like, oh, my gosh, what do I do in this situation? Like, are you 16 years old? Like, what just happened? Like, how do you handle this, Right. And that's like what parenting is, is like every moment, like your kid's always growing and it's like every moment's a new moment where you're like, Lord, Jesus, take the wheel. I don't know what to do. Anyways, I'm at the door and I'm knocking. I'm like, you need to, like, you need to open this door. Like, do not lock me out of this door. Like, we don't lock doors here. Like, it's dating. Anyways. And we finally, the door gets opened. Long story short, don't give you all the details, but we finally reconcile. And what I discovered was this, was the reason the door was locked and my presence was shut out was fear. It's fear. She locked the door she... The refrain was essentially, she didn't know what kind of daddy she would encounter when she opened the door. 
and that's why she boxed me out. And often in our lives, we live with crippling shame and condemnation. And we, we run away from God and we shut the door because say, clearly, I don't know what kind of father I'm going to meet. I'm too far gone. This sin is too big of a deal for him to handle. And returning to our text, these people are grieved over their sins. And they're kind of crying in the room, if you will, with the door shut. And the Holy Spirit has brought conviction which is different than condemnation. Conviction leads to repentance. Condemnation is of the enemy to accuse you and make you depressed and miserable and full of shame and to keep you distant from God. Condemnation wants you to keep God's presence out and keep the door locked. Conviction of the Holy Spirit says, I've done wrong, but God, let's talk about it. And I want to invite you in. And Nehemiah 8.10 says this. And then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our God, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. He's saying God's people. God is not angry. God is elated with this moment. God has been waiting for this moment for decades upon decades upon decades. And so this moment is holy to God, meaning we need to rejoice. And this is, a, this is a foreshadowing of Jesus in the parable of the lost sheep in Luke 15, when Jesus says this in Luke 15, and band, you can come on up. We're going to segue into communion here. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. What God has made crystal clear in his word is if you are here today and you're wrestling with shame and sin and condemnation, he actually rejoices when sinners come home just as they are to his presence. He pops champagne. They throw a feast. Ezra and Nehemiah told the people, stop mourning. Stop. God's not angry. Wipe that. Like when you unhitch the door to, to, to bring in the presence of your father, he, he wants to embrace you. That's what this is about. He wants to lead you back home to his heart. God is rejoicing. Drink wine. The joy of the Lord is your strength. This moment in Nehemiah 8, 1 through 10, is a beautiful moment in redemptive history. It's a celebration. It's a renewal of the covenant of two parties that were once separated coming home. And instead of grieving, God through his servants commands his people, don't you weep, don't you mourn anymore. Rejoice. And so this last verse is what I'll conclude with. John 1, 14 says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. That's the heart of your Savior, Jesus Christ, to his people today. If you're here today and you're coming on the heels of a, a moral failure, another uh, regret, uh, 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 things that are weighing over your head, Jesus is full of grace and he's full of truth. Uh, God became uh, 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 flesh, John 1.14 says, and dwelt among us. And Jesus came to, to reveal the true nature of God to humanity. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of God's nature, of who he is and his posture towards humanity. Colossians 2.9 says that in him, Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So the bottom line is this. If you want to know God's heart for you, look no farther than Jesus Christ, the one full of truth and full of grace. 
The one who knows the truth of your sins and yet went to the cross to pay your debt of sin so that instead of you getting wrath for your sins, he would take the hit for you so that you could get kindness and forgiveness and reconciliation to God forever. So all that to say, if the Holy Spirit, as I've been talking, has ministered to your heart and you felt the whisper of God to come back home, open the door, don't shut out my presence, do that today in prayer. Let's go silent. Let's bow our heads. We're going to take communion. The scriptures encourage us to prepare our hearts before communion. What communion represents is this covenant renewal. Uh, uh, table fellowship in the ancient Near East was always uh, a symbol between two people that we belong, that you're my friend, you're my family. We share a meal together. And covenants were also uh, often enacted in the history of God's people through God essentially sharing a meal with his people, calling the 70 elders in Exodus to come and share a meal with him. And so that's the invitation today. And so let's get our, our hearts right before the Lord. Search our hearts in any way that we're shutting out his presence and let his grace and his kindness lead us to open up the door and invite him into our shame, into our sin to receive fresh forgiveness today. God, there's no one like you, O oh Lord. You're holy, you're holy, you're holy. In your Torah, you reveal that you're a God who's slow to anger. You're so unlike us, God. You're slow to anger. You're so unlike us, God. Holy. You're abounding in steadfast love, even when we're abounding in steadfast disobedience and unfaithfulness. You're slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and mercy. You sing songs of deliverance and delight over your people. You're so unlike us, oh God. Forgive us when, when we've been prone to wander, Lord, this week, to leave the God we love. And Lord, we return to you, God, to receive fresh forgiveness, to repent, to turn from idols and say, they don't satisfy, God. Only you satisfy. There's only one place I want to dwell. It's in your presence, oh God. I don't want to dwell in the presence of false gods, I want to dwell in the presence of the true and living God of my Father who gave his Son out of love for me to bring me home. So here are hearts, Lord. Would you take and seal them? Would you wash away shame and condemnation? Would those who've been drifting feel the embrace? Lord God, as they open the door to your presence, that they're not rejected, you're not waving a finger in their face, but you're grabbing their hand and you're rejoicing over the one sinner who repents today. So thank you, Lord, for your heart. That's your posture. That's the truth of your word today. Don't mourn, rejoice. Joy in you is our strength because we have a great God who's so compassionate and so zealous in love for us. So thank you, God. We love you. We bless your name. And all God's people said, amen. All right, well, we're going to sing a, a couple songs in praise and adoration to our Savior. Uh, as you feel led, um, continue to... Uh, Keep fellowship with the Spirit. And as you feel led, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, take of the communion elements, uh, the, the wafer representing Christ's body broken for you and the, the shed blood, uh, the, the, the juice representing Christ's blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of your sins. And as you do that, remember that this is God's heart for you, that he's prepared the table to fellowship with you. This is what all the work of Christ is onto you, is him pulling up a chair at his table of, of glory and of love with your name on it to bring you home to share uh, fellowship 
with him. So he's a great God. He's worthy to be praised today. And when you're ready, take of these communion elements.